Well, I'm excited to jump into our topic today. For those of you who are new, my name is Brian. I'm a pastor here at the church. We want to welcome all of you. Obviously, our, our goal, our hope, our prayer is that you come back and you find something here that you're looking for. We want to welcome those of you who are also joining us online. We know that oftentimes most people will, will watch a series or two before they come and visit, and we look forward to meeting you. I want to start out today with a quiz. Are you ready for a quiz? Here it goes, all right? I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you the pictures of two different people, and I want you to tell me which person is happier, okay? Here's the first person. The first person is Mavic Mavis Wanzik of Chicopee, Massachusetts. Mavis, for the last 32 years, has worked at the Mercy Medical Center and has been struggling to save enough money to put a down payment on a new home and to pay off her Nissan Maxima. Her luck changed on August 27th of last year when a friend reminded her to check her Powerball ticket. She reached into her purse and discovered that she had won $758,700,000. What would you have done? Everyone advised her, Mavis, whatever you do, you need to keep your life as normal as possible. You need to keep your job. Would you have done that with $758 million? Obviously, Mavis is a lot like you. She told reporters she called the hospital and said, quote, I will not be coming back. Now, here's a second person. Her name is Rachel Friedman. This is Rachel and her fiancé, Chris. They fell in love in college where he eventually proposed. And in 2010, all of her friends came together and threw a bachelorette party for her two weeks before her wedding at a grand time. They went out to eat, and then they went back to a friend's house to relax by the pool, and that's when things changed. They were all joking around, and one of her friends pushed her into the pool. And this is something that happens at pool parties all of the time. But on this day, she landed the wrong way and laid motionless, face down in the water. Her friends pulled her out, called the ambulance. She was rushed to the hospital where they discovered that she had injured her spinal cord, and now she's a paraplegic and can no longer use her legs. The good news is, after her rehabilitation, she's excited about life. She and her Chris went on to get married. She has no hard feelings whatsoever towards her very good friend, who's a very good friend to this day. No hard feelings whatsoever towards the girl that pushed her into the water. They were just joking around. She knew it was a freak accident. And in fact, she and Chris now have a little girl. Here's the quiz. Two questions, actually. First question is this. Who would you rather be, Mavis Wanzik or Rachel Friedman? Now, before you, before you answer that question, let me give you some information. Just so you know, Mavis hasn't turned into one of those typical Powerball winners you hear, where they win millions, and then two weeks later, their life is... Where do you say that? Perilously spiraling out of control. She's normal. She's enjoying life, and she has not gone crazy with the money. And, of course, we're all rooting for Rachel. We're ecstatic that she's doing so well. But given those things, who would you rather be? Mavis or Rachel? 
Now, obviously, everyone would choose to win the lottery unless there's something wrong with you. But here's the second question. Who do you think was happier one year later? Lottery winners or paraplegics? You want to guess? Psychologist Dan Gilbert and his researchers at Harvard interviewed people one year after hitting the lottery and one year after becoming a paraplegic. And this is what they discovered. Take a look at this chart. Their happiness levels were exactly the same one year later. One year after hitting the lottery and one year after becoming a paraplegic. Their happiness levels were exactly the same. Today we're finishing a series called The Happiness Challenge. The first week we talked about how most people say they're happy, but they're actually not. What they're actually doing is they're manufacturing one incredible moment of awesomeness after another. And this gives them a dopamine hit. I love this picture. Don't you love this picture? Uh, I love that, love that picture. This gives them a dopamine hit in their brain, but only masks for a short time their genuine unhappiness. Now, the second and third week, we talked about how genuine happiness is found when we believe and do hard things, that we can't be genuinely happy in life when we refuse to acknowledge and address stuff that we know we need to address in our lives. Otherwise, we're simply throwing Band-Aids on that. I, I was thinking of what would be the perfect illustration of that most people don't get this. Most people don't even know what genuine happiness looks like. They think they're happy until they're actually standing next to someone who is genuinely happy from the heart. Um, I wanted to show you a video clip. This is of another church's uh, worship service where they invited the kids to come in and sing. I think this is a perfect illustration. Um, I want you to look very closely. There are going to be a lot of kids in this video, so it's going to be hard to tell. But I, what I want you to do is I want you to, th to try to pick out the kid in the video that is genuinely happy. Take a look. There's revival in the spring Like a wildfire in my heart Oh, it, it gets better. Hold on. Were you able to find her, right? That's what it's like with people who think they're genuinely happy. They don't even realize it until they're in the presence of someone that actually is genuinely happy. I love that line of the song. There ain't nothing going to steal my joy 
of course, except singing in front of my parents at church. Yeah, that will do it. That will do it. I love that example because when you put people side by side with someone that has figured out a way to experience what God wants them to experience in life, shocking. So one more thing we're going to learn about happiness today. Turn in your Bibles to the book of James. Um, We talked about it last week. We're going to look at another section in the first chapter of James. Now, for those of you who are brand new, we just want to let you know, every single service, we take a portion of our service when we meet, and we talk about the Bible and what it means to our everyday life. We believe the Bible is the answer book, and we bring our problems to it. It shows us how to solve it and what place God plays in that. So there are um, Bibles that you can grab on your way in and carts, but more importantly, we know most people uh, will read things on their phones. And so we have an app uh, that you could download in the App Store. Go to the App Store, go to Google Play, type in one word, Movie Church. It will bring up the app and then click. Can you bring the app? uh, No, there we go. Uh, You click that tab right there and it will bring the passage up that we're looking at. James chapter 1 says this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. What James is saying is if we can just get God's perspective on what's going on when he allows trials to enter our lives, it will change us. Because what will happen is we'll realize that there are two really important things that happen when we go through hard times. Because what we do, we're like, God, take the hard times away from me. And he's like, you don't understand. I sent them for a reason. Or I'm allowing you to experience them for a reason. It's two things. That we may become mature and complete. Trials complete us. They mature us. I want you to think back this week. Um, what, have, what was the big trial that you faced this week? The trial that might have shaped you and made you more mature. I thought of two trials uh, I faced this past week since we last met. Uh, the first was last week when I was forced to listen to Chris Collinsworth. Yes profess his man crush on Tom Brady for three hours. Was he on Bill Belichick's payroll? Come on, man. It helped me become a more patient person. The other one was last night uh, when I was forced to watch Olympic ice dancing instead of college basketball. I made the grievous mistake of giving my wife the controls and saying, turn on anything you want. She did. Two hours later, in the middle of a riveting ice dance presentation, (laughs) one of the commentators whispered, people, we're in the golden age of Olympic ice dancing. (laughs) In case you doubted whether or not we're on the brink of the apocalypse... Here you are. But I imagine, just for a second, I want you to imagine what would happen if you eliminated all the problems from your life, if all of your problems were solved. You had all the money you needed. All your relationships were perfect. Everything that isn't right about your life fixed instantly. 
I want you to imagine a perfect, pristine life for you. What do you think would happen two days after your life became perfect? A week, a month, a year, ten years. What would a lifetime look like if every single problem was removed from your life? A few years ago, uh, Lisa and I were um, going through Italy, and we made our way to Rome, and we said, oh, we're going to the Vatican. And um, I'm telling you the story because there's this marble that's in northern Italy. It's called Carrara Marble, and this is a picture of a, a quarry in, in northern Italy. And I wanted to show this to you because this is exactly what Michelangelo would have seen as he began to chisel out one of the greatest masterpieces the world has ever seen, the Pieta which is housed in St. Peter's Basilica. A few years ago, this was the thing I wanted to see when we went to the Vatican. But I found out when I got there that it's housed behind a big piece of glass. Those of you who have been in the Vatican, you know, I'm, I'm like, oh, I'm going to get there. I'm possibly going to be able to touch it. I'm going to get real close. No, it's behind a big piece of glass. How many of you come from a Hungarian background? Raise your hand. Kind of hold your hand up. We've got a few people, a few Hungarians, Okay. I asked this because in 1972, there was this crazy Hungarian guy took a hammer and beat, it on, beat on the paeta 12 times, and they put it behind a piece of glass. I bring that up because you Hungarians ruin everything, okay? I just <laughs> want to point that out. Anyway, all right, so look, look at this picture. Sorry about that. Look at this picture. Look at this picture. On the left is your life without any trials, On the right, this is what God's going for. On the left, this was what Michelangelo was staring at when it took him two years to chisel away with a hammer to get to the Pieta. God's been working on you your entire life. Now, this does, obviously doesn't mean that we put on happy faces and we pretend that everything is great because it's not. It's uncomfortable, at times, it's terrible. And at times, it seems downright immoral. And God's like, yeah, I know. I know. Now, here's the thing. Once you know this, it changes how you view trials. Once you know what trials do to you and what your life would be like without trials, it changes everything. I love the message on this tattoo no ledge is power. <laughs> Never forget that. You learned that in church, people. No ledge is power. Just remember that. Anyway, but knowing this, knowing this about trials, it changes the way we view hard times. James is like, well, when you view it that way, even though they're terrible, you're like, I know God's up to something here. I don't know what it is. It seems unfair. It's just wrong. But I'm just going to trust right now that God's up to something. Here's the last phrase I want to draw your attention to. It's in the fourth verse of the first chapter of James. It says this, Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James is saying the other reason God allows trials is to bring us to the point where we don't need anything. Now, if you remember, for those of you who uh, watched the first talk or you were here for the first talk, we talked about a psychologist by the name of William James who did some of the earliest research on human behavior. 
William James said this, if we were to ask the question of what is human life's chief concern, one of the answers we should receive would be it is happiness. How to gain, how to keep, how to recover happiness is for most men at all times the secret motive of all they do and all they're willing to endure. In other words, there's nothing more important to every single person in this room. The base motivation of what makes us human beings is that we want to be happy and we will be happy at all costs. What we've talked about is that genuine happiness is found by believing and doing hard things, but ultimately what God is going for is to get us to the point where we don't need anything, including happiness. God allows us to experience trials. He forces us to believe and to do hard things. But his ultimate goal is what James is saying, so that we are not lacking anything. Until we reach that point, our desire for everything in life including happiness, will never be satisfied. James is talking about not needing anything. In other words, genuine happiness is no longer needing to be happy. Guys, I don't know how many of you are married, but if you are, uh, give me a little nod if you asked uh, your wife's parents for permission um, to marry her. Kind of give, give me a little nod, okay? A lot of, a lot of men in the room. Uh, it's a traditional thing. Um, I did it. Uh, any guy who wants to marry one of my daughters uh, will do the same, or they will die. <laughs> well, get that on video out there. Get that out there. Let me share the worst possible example I've ever seen of a guy asking his father-in-law, or his future father-in-law, for his daughter's hand in marriage. All right? Um, the young man's name is Adoniram Judson. He was an incredibly bright man. In 1804, he enrolled in Brown University. Four years later, he was the class valedictorian. Could have done anything in life. While he was in college, Adoniram befriended a young man by the name of Jacob Ames, who introduced him to atheist French philosophers, which over time chipped away at Adoniram's Christian convictions. And he left him a nice, moral, religious-selling resounding, ambivalent, whatever you become when you get to the point where you're like, I'm a Christian, but I really don't care anymore. Whatever you want to call that, that's what Adoniram was. Sometime after graduation, both Adoniram and Jacob were traveling. They stayed at an inn. They stayed in separate rooms. During the night, Adam was awoken, or Adoniram was awoken to screams and crying of someone in pain. He wondered who it was. He didn't know who it was. And so he just fell back asleep. Only to discover in the morning that it was his friend Jacob who was dying of some strange sickness. And he had heard it and did nothing. That experience had such a profound effect on Adoniram that he immediately jettisoned his skepticism, re-embraced his Christian faith, went to seminary, and made a solemn dedication of himself to God, as he put it, and dedicated his entire life to seeking and finding people like his friend Jacob, who needed to meet Jesus. Very quickly, he decided that he was going to become a missionary to the most unreached place on the planet at the time, India. The populated, dangerous, and vastly unexplored country 
of India. Well, during this time, he had fallen in love with a young woman named Marianne. And since her parents didn't live close by, Adoniram decided that he was going to write a letter to her father asking for her hand in marriage. And after sharing a few pleasantries and catching her father up on what his plans were to become a missionary, Adoniram said this, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in a world of glory with the crown of righteousness? Well, when you put it like that, how could I say no? He wrote back and said, Marianne can do whatever she wants. She has my blessing, but it's ultimately her decision, not mine. Soon after, um, 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 she, she... She wrote a friend of hers, Lydia, and said this, I feel willing and expect, if nothing in providence prevents, to spend my days in this world in heathen lands. Yes, Lydia, I have about come to the determination to give up all my comforts and enjoyments here, sacrifice my affection to relatives and friends, and go where God and his providence shall see fit to place me. Well, life in India went about as well as you'd expect. Marianne gave birth at sea just three weeks before they landed. And the baby died. Soon after getting established, they received word that all their financial supporters had pulled out. They were penniless. He began to teach people about Jesus, and he was thrown into prison by the local authorities. Chained upside down for two years and tortured, Marianne brought him food every single day. Eventually, she became sick and just as thin as he. And eventually, when he got out of prison... He got out just in time to watch his wife die. Now, at that point, you would expect him to say, okay, I'm calling it a day and I'm going home. But he didn't do that. He said, okay, well, maybe India isn't where God wants me to go. I'm going to go to someplace even more difficult. I'm going to go to Burma, which is modern-day Myanmar. Failing in India only made him more resolved. Adoniram said, I will not leave Burma until the cross is planted here forever. And so he stayed in Burma for 35 years, remarried two more times, had 13 children altogether, seven of which died early deaths. And we read that, and we're like, you're kidding, right? What a waste. What a waste. Just imagine what a guy as smart and talented as that could do back here in the States, the money he could make, the people he could reach here. Why would you do that? Surely they would have asked, wouldn't you have been happier doing something else with your life when he came back from the mission field? And I think he would have been genuinely taken back. I think Adoniram Judson, if someone had asked them that question, would have said, what does happiness have to do with anything. 
The reason I'm happy is because I no longer need to be happy. That's why I'm happy. Now, before going to Burma, Adoniram had one simple goal, to start a church that had 100 people in it. By the time he died, after 35 years in Burma, Adoniram Judson started 100 churches, translated the Bible into Burmese, which was then used across the country by other groups who then went and started churches and schools and hospitals. Today, there are over 3,700 churches that trace their beginning back to Adoniram Judson. And if you go to Myanmar up in the highlands, there is the Karen tribe. They have over 180,000 Christians in this tribe, over 100 Christian schools. They send missionaries all over Southeast Asia. And if you ask them how this happened, they'll all tell you. Because there was a genuinely happy man named Adoniram Judson, who didn't need to be happy, and spent his entire life helping them learn about Jesus. Here's the whole point of this series. The paradox of happiness is that those who are genuinely happy no longer need to be happy to be happy. Because they face trials and these trials have made them mature and complete, not lacking anything, you get to that point, which all of us can get to. You're a free person. You're free. The world has no control over you. You, find, you show me someone that's in a marriage, and they're genuinely happy, because they don't need their spouse to constantly make them happy, that is an amazing person to be married to. Tell me something that's more important to teach our kids. I just want to say this. First week, I said, you don't have to become a Christian to be happy. Becoming a Christian doesn't make you happy any more than becoming a Christian automatically makes you a great parent or, or whatever. I will say this. I've never met a person who didn't need to be happy. Who didn't have this inside of them filled. So I think you can have a good quality of life. I think you can go on just fine and not be a Christian. Let me tell you what. What you're looking for, what you dream about subconsciously, what you're driving for, what you're orchestrating your life for, what you're planning for, everything that you want is possible. It is possible to get to the point where you are genuinely happy because you don't need to be happy anymore. Show me someone like that, that person's unstoppable. Let's pray. God, we need, we need you to, to fill our hearts, to fill our minds, not just to be with us, but for those of us who have not made you our leader yet, we need you to come into our lives. We need you to fill us with your presence. We need you to forgive us and give us hope and freedom that we find in Christ. God, through you, walking with you and knowing you, 
Help us to be genuinely happy. No longer needing anything in this world to make us happy. Needing no one to complete us but you. Needing nothing to complete us than you. Not a dollar amount, not a job, not a place, not a set of circumstances. Nothing other than you making us complete. Fill us, we pray, with your presence. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to Brian Jones Sermons. For more information and to find similar articles on this topic and more, go to happinessable.com.